Welcome back to the Better Way podcast brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast where we ask, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Kosalia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I am joined, as always, by the one and only Hui Chen. Hi, Hui. Hi, Zach. Hi, everybody. It's good to, as always, to be here talking about fascinating things. Indeed. And we are joined by one of our favorite people and one of our favorite guests, Dr. Caitlin Handron, also from RNG Insights Lab. Hey, Caitlin. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. We are very happy to have you. Way, what are we talking about today? We're talking about one of my all-time pet peeves, which is this compliance world's favorite slogan, just do the right thing. Um, I confess to cringing every time I hear that. So the reason why I always cringe when when I hear people say this as the ultimate slogan of you know how to do compliance is that it, it, it presumes that everybody understands what the right thing is in the same way the speaker is using it. And I think that's a very, very faulty assumption. Compliance thinks that the audience is hearing don't do all the things that we tell you not to do. Don't bribe people, don't collude with people on pricing, all of those things. But what the people who are actually delivering the message and people who are hearing it, they're hearing do the right thing is achieve your goals through whatever means. But this all gets perfectly disguised in a simple phrase. It's one of those phrases where people come to it with very different ideas and I'm, of course, tending to think about things from a cultural perspective. So I think of the literature that demonstrates that people have different values, but even within an organizational setting, taking out national culture as a concept, we can think about the ways in which organizations within a single organization might have competing values, as you said. Uh, are we results driven or are we going to be focusing on inclusion and collaboration? And often these conversations about what the right thing means, there's just a lot of assumptions and the conversation itself might not even be had about uh, what we have determined is the right thing and how we're going to go about achieving it. So Caitlin, you are always telling us, uh, and we are in turn quite often telling our clients that stories offer insight um, into the richness and the complexity of a particular issue. I'm wondering if we can make this a little bit realer for folks by sharing a story about doing the right thing that kind of brings some life to this concept of it. It, it, it isn't always so clear. A story that comes to mind is one from academia actually where there are certainly conversations being had about what is the right thing and uh, how do we live our values. And so I was an undergraduate and I was working as a research assistant in a lab and I had gotten the feedback that the way to get into grad school was to get published. So in academia, there's a very strong culture of publish or perish. And so there are strong norms and expectations that everyone is supposed to be publishing uh, publishing quickly and publishing in high impact journals. I read the journals. And what I was noticing is that there was a pretty clear pattern in how articles were being published. And so 
Many of them had a couple of studies that all hung together very nicely, told a very clean story, and all more or less, quote unquote, worked in terms of demonstrating the hypothesis. But this practice was contributing to what was known as the file drawer problem. And this is where the studies that don't demonstrate your hypothesis don't ever see the light of day. We don't have broader conversations in academia about the context and the boundary conditions and when things work and when things don't, because the tendency is to just publish a very clean story about how things work and uh, studies that are consistent with your hypotheses. Now, what was so great at the time, though, is that I worked with advisors who really were courageous enough to push against these norms and to really challenge the common practices. Now, since that time, um, there has been a replication crisis in the field of psychology where some of these practices, the broader culture of publish or perish, has really begun to show its weaknesses. So this, um, this tendency to just publish the studies that demonstrate the phenomenon and uh, to kind of hide the ones that don't work has led to a situation where often research doesn't replicate. So people try to use the same methods in new situations and it doesn't work. And there's just so much information potentially in those file drawers about why uh, the conditions under which these things will happen or won't happen. And so I think the conversation has shifted a lot in the field from one of doing the right thing in terms of getting published and having high impact articles to really thinking about the methodology and how do we ensure that the process itself is sound and how do we ensure that the approach that we're taking is, is solid in terms of scientific rigor. And I'd say that was a really big transition and I was right on the cusp and benefited so greatly from having leaders within uh, my lab who had the foresight and the integrity to say that they wanted to do things differently than what the pervasive norms were at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting about that, and it ties into what what Hui said as well, is that this discussion about doing the right thing in in that example really comes down to, well, what is the desired outcome? Um, if the desired outcome is, you know, uh, publish or perish or a self-interested desire to to publish one's work, doing the right thing may look like X. Um, if the goal is to more meaningfully contribute to the body of science um, and to advance the profession, what is right may look very different. Well, I think you have another example from your own experience that further kind of um, takes this point home. In the 1990s, I, I lived in Vienna, Austria, and I interned with the United Nations. And a colleague's husband was Turkish, but he grew up in Austria and worked for an American company. I remember him saying that American headquarters prohibited them from discussing pricing with competitors. Any you know, people who, who are in the American corporate space uh, understand this. This is a standard sort of antitrust um, compliance uh, right thing to do, which is not discuss pricing with your with your competitors. And but, you know, this guy's response was everybody in Europe discusses pricing with competitors all the time. So the American antitrust prohibition was just a stupid thing that everybody lied to their Americans 
at the headquarters about. So it's not the wrong thing. It's just a stupid thing to take that, you know, sort of point uh, in another recent, you know, discussion with a, with a corporate executive, Caitlin and I were both um, in this conversation where we're talking about a particular market outside of the U.S. that's experienced a lot of compliance issues. So he says, well, I keep telling them to do the right thing. And I said, well, what does the right thing mean to you? He says, well, things that's not going to land us on the page of the New York Times. And I said, what if the thing that you don't want them to do is something they all of them do? If you don't do that thing, you're just stupid. He says, oh, no, but that's not my standard. My standard is the New York Times standard. And what I really wanted to say back to him is that your standard is as irrelevant to them as the, the Timbuktu Daily News's uh, standard would be to you because you're using a standard that is completely outside of their lives. They don't live in your world where New York Times matters. They live in their own world where their peers, their um, society matters a lot more to them and are a lot more real to them than New York Times is. So if you don't get into this world, then you're never gonna be able to communicate why this is important to you or why it should be important to them. I think one of the, the difficulties is that by, by characterizing things as right and wrong, sometimes we have, we have really moralized a lot of basically Western ways of thinking of things and doing things. So that's not only not necessarily efficient in getting people to understand where you're coming from, but in a way, it's kind of condescending to the people that you're talking to because you're in a way telling people your way of thinking and your way of life is wrong. Our way is right. Your way is wrong. And that is sort of almost like adding insult to injury. So that's what really concerns me about this particular approach. So, Caitlin, I, I want to come back to you now because Obviously, much of your work now focuses on culture in the organizational context, although even within the organizational context, it's not uh, to the exclusion of the role that national cultures uh, may play in an organization. And so I'd like you to share a little bit more about how national culture um, and, and culture in the most traditional sense plays into um, individuals understanding or appreciation or definition of the right thing. It's such a great topic. And we, we've we spoken on the podcast in the past about just the pervasiveness in the literature of the weird perspective, Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. And for a long time in the morality research, what was very common was a very individualistic perspective on morality where what was perceived as good and right was based within what individuals believed was good and right and very much um, rooted in the individual and individual perceptions. Increasingly, cultural psychology and cross-cultural research has demonstrated that this is just one way of thinking about morality and ethics and integrity. Um, Can you and- drive this home for folks, though, uh, by, by, by defining the golden rule? Yes, absolutely. 
So the golden rule is the idea that I'm going to do unto others as I would have them do unto me. This is all, again, rooted in my personal um, value system, my beliefs about what is good and right and moral. And so I will treat others the way that I want to be treated. So this can be contrasted with the platinum rule, which says do unto others as they would have you do unto them. And that's a big shift where now instead of treating others how I want to be treated, I actually have to listen and pay attention and learn and find out how would this person want to be treated? What makes sense to them? What are the values and behaviors and um, patterns that are consistent with their worldview? And it's a very different approach. Uh, I'd say one of the big um, other drivers in terms of behavior and how we make sense of the world is whether we want to show up in a way that's very influential. So I want to change and affect the world around me. It's a very individualistic perspective, one where it's okay to act on the world based on what I think is right. And that can be contrasted with context where it's actually much more important to be paying attention to the context, to be paying attention to expectations and obligations, to what other people want. And in those contexts, it's really valuable to be adjusting and accommodating, to recognize your place, to recognize your role, and to, um, you know, fall into line more or less sometimes, depending on what the context is asking for. And so it's not only a different way of making sense of a problem, but it leads to different conclusions about how to act and what the right kind of behavior is in a given situation. There's been a lot of talk over the course of the past number of years, and I think some meaningful movement within organizations away from treating compliance as rules uh, and making it more about principles. Is that approach at odds with what we're talking about here? Is a principles-based approach to compliance at odds with the notion that there's something wrong with doing the right thing. I think there's definitely some tension there because when, when you're talking about principles, you are talking about basically your core ethical values and how that is perceived and understood and defined can really vary from, uh, you know, from one culture to another. Culture is not just you know, at the organizational level or at the national level, it exists in many levels uh, in, in a very complex way. Um, so in organizations, there's, you know, there's the geographical cultures of where the, the company is situated, but there's also sort of different cultures within the different functions of the, uh, of the organization. There's also subcultures of every place that, you know, depending on its population, the gender, race, and social classes. So all of those things come into play. And let me give another story about how the values-based um, approach may, may create some tension uh, with, with what we're saying here. Um, so, so I was recently talking to, a, uh, to an auditor in, who works in Hawaii. He, he used to work on the mainland. He recently uh, started doing audit work in Hawaii. And he said, you know, for some reason, like being in Hawaii, 
has doing audit work just has been so much more stressful than he had ever experienced it before. So he took a class on, on the Hawaiian slash Polynesian culture. And what he learned was um, between the principles of truth and harmony, uh, harmony is highly valued in the Hawaiian Polynesian culture, way over truth. If these two things are in tension, we will always choose the principle of harmony before the principle of truth. And so, so he's, he realized that for me, my job is about truth all the time. Truth, you know, this is what I do. I, I dig out truth and I make them known. And it causes a lot of resistance in a culture that feels threatened by that. I think that principle-based approach, once again, you have to recognize there, there are other cultural contexts where the principles are prioritized differently or even defined differently than you might imagine. Caitlin? And I think one of the functions that a framework of right versus wrong does is try to simplify things for us where we have clear labels for what is good and what is bad or what is right and what is wrong. And I think what we're talking about here is letting go of that simplicity and embracing some of the complexity that comes with recognizing that people differ in how they do things and what they do and how they make sense of those actions. And so when I think about values and principles, what I feel comes about is really that conversation about how do we want to do things? What do we want to um, ensure is a part of the process? What do we want to attend to and take care of? And I think that is very valuable and different from a rules-based approach, which I think might contribute more to that framework of this is right and this is wrong, or this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. I, th I think the values and principles-based approach actually embraces more of that complexity, as long as we don't begin with that foundation of the assumption that everyone agrees about how things should be done. I think the first step is, is to really make sure that there is alignment between people's different belief systems and what the organization itself is aiming for. What this reminds me of is a discussion that we've had a, a few times on the podcast around precision. And I think that that's one of the challenges, right, with do the right thing. It is the very definition of imprecise. But that doesn't mean that a value or a principle has to be imprecise. And I think that that's probably one of the things that's wrong with doing the right thing is that it, it is terribly imprecise. Yes, I love that. And tangentially, one of the ideas that comes to mind for me is just uh, some of the ideas that I've learned from feng shui, that there is no good or bad or right or wrong. It's just about placement. And it's just about finding the right place so that systems and processes are in sync and can line up well and aren't destructive. And I love that orientation, but just the idea that everything has a place, you just need to look for it and uh, try to make sense of how everything can fit together. I think we all agree that the principles-based approach definitely does a much better job at embracing complexity than a rule-based regime. But for the principle-based approach, to truly embrace the complexities. It's gotta start with you recognizing your principles are not the only principles. 
that's got to be the first step in order for that system to work in embracing complexity. And we work in an organization where not everyone lives and works and was born in the same country. Um, and that's true for any you know large global organization. Can an organization say, this is what is right within these walls? Or is it just always going to be a losing battle because those walls will never be able to compete with the broader cultural context in which that organization operates? This is a story uh, from one of the earlier Malcolm Gladwell books, and it resonated a lot with me. The story was about Korean airlines. In the 80s, Korean airlines had a terrible track record in terms of safety. And, and, and this is all referenced in, in his book. So they they were at the point of being sort of prohibited from flying in, into certain jurisdictions because there are safety records. And there is a cultural element, you know, that, that Malcolm Gladwell pointed out. The Korean aviation culture is so hierarchical and to the point where the captain is can feel free to physically smack his first officer on the head in front of the crew. And that's accepted behavior. And you then come into the situation where you're listening to the to the taping from the black box from the from the accident and it's people not speaking up so they can see the fuel tank is empty but not one person there says uh captain we're really low on fuel and we gotta land this bird right now um you know other situations where they other other people in the cockpit could see problems they're about to fly into a mountain they're you know they have mechanical problems nobody's speaking up so one of the things that the aviation industry developed at that time was called um, CRM cockpit resource management and the CRM system was really aimed to address some of these issues and they took this not as a moral exercise, they took it as a communications exercise. So the core of CRM was a lot about teaching the, those in charge, the captain, to turn around and specifically ask, make this a routine. First officer, do you see anything? Flight engineer, do you see anything? And by enhancing this communication system that they can then overcome some of the some of the sort of cultural inhibitions that might be inhibiting the communications particularly in a crisis situation so you have a greater culture that is very hierarchical but when they step into the cockpit crm's practice allows them to change that culture while they're sitting in those seats flying the plane so that they can make use of all the human resources and all the things that they're seeing in their decision making so I, this resonates me in so many ways because it's a story about how you can transform the larger culture in a specific context. Um, it's also because my father was a pilot and he was responsible for bringing CRM to to his airline. So um, so so I was you know like I I remember I I grew up hearing my dad uh, talking about CRM CRM CRM. And here I am reading a story about how CRM has improved safety and Korean airline has, has one of the best safety records today um, since the implementation of CRM. So, so I've always been saying, like, what is the CRM for, um, for, for, the, for corporate? Um, and 
my answer to that is exactly what CRM is, which is communications. It's eliciting people's answers, even when they might not be trained to give it to you. It's making an effort to understand what the cultures and norms and expectations and behaviors are in your organization. And so in these parts, I think we call that a culture assessment. Well, Caitlin, what do you think of that? I think that there is so much that can be done to shape culture. Of course, I I do this work um, every day thinking about how to take concrete actions to shape the broader um, environment. From the story I told earlier, um, I worked in a lab that really sought to push against the norms of the broader culture. And so within our lab, what we really valued was scientific rigor. And that showed up in how we communicated with one another, the processes we had in place to evaluate our work and ensure that everything was accurate. And the way in which we took pride in our work, that really factored in. And eventually the broader culture caught up and that became part of the conversation that was happening in other labs as well. But I think it's absolutely possible to do things differently. And even when we think about values and how some of these processes play out within an organizational setting, you know, some organizations really value innovation and coming up with new ideas. And that part of the process is really going to be given a lot of room and energy and thinking differently will be prioritized. Others, you know, might focus on the process and ensuring that rules and regulations are followed and that everything is um, controlled down to a T. And it's just about coming to understand that question of how do we want to do things around here and ensuring that everything lines up with that broader uh, mission so that, as Hui said, you're using communication, you're using rituals, you're using practices to ensure that there is that alignment. I'd like to play a little game. As we were prepping for this discussion today, I just spent like a couple minutes and I typed out two groups of values or principles or behaviors. One that I thought most people would sort of look at and say, oh yeah, like that's the right thing. We can all agree to that. And another that I felt like a lot of people would look at and be like, well, I'm not so sure. So I thought I'd throw some of them out there and see how how you react to them. So the first one is we don't steal, no theft. Can we all, I mean, could we all agree to that? Yes, I can. Um, I think. Oh, she's not going to agree to it. I come from circles where innovation and art are foundational to a lot of the ways that we think about and make sense of the world around us. And in both innovation and art, using other people's ideas (laughs) is sometimes part of the process. Even in academia, we cite each other's literature. I guess maybe we can get into the definition of stealing, but I think exactly. <laughs> maybe that's the place to start now that i am walked myself into this little hole. <laughs> I love it. We come back to that point of precision, right? So it's yes. how do you define stealing? Because I could see what you're saying, Caitlin, but when I was thinking of stealing, I wasn't thinking of those. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, let's do another one. Um, so the the other one we 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 hit on a little bit in uh, quite a bit actually in in the context of your uh, Malcolm Gladwell story, but it's speaking up. Is that can we universally kind of get behind that as the right thing to do? I think there are different motivations for speaking up and the question is why are we speaking up and for what purpose you know sometimes people feel compelled to speak up just because they have something to say like what I'm doing right now I'm (laughs) I'm pushing against the idea for the sake of pushing against the idea in context where harmony is really valued me blurting out the first thing that comes to mind is not necessarily a productive or useful way to continue or advance the conversation and so Yes, I think in the U.S. we tend towards really valuing the possibility that someone might have something genius to contribute at any moment. Um, But I think in other contexts, there is more of that emphasis on listening and paying attention and sometimes holding on to your thoughts until you have some more context and some more information can be really valuable so that if you choose to speak up or if you choose to contribute in a way that is different from speaking up, you know, it could just play out a little differently than just blurting out what comes to mind um, in the moment. I am having so much fun. I love this. Okay. (laughs) I want to build off of that one by throwing a a similar concept that's in the other bucket that I think that people will be like, oh no, we universally sort of can sort of agree that's not a good thing. Uh, and, And that one is tattling on a friend. Well, I think at this point, you know, I have an opinion, but I'll leave it to Hoi to start us (laughs) off. I think my answer would have to be it depends. <laughs> yeah. Well, because that's the that's the tension that often exists within an organizational context, right? On one hand, you know, the organization is is often saying, we value speaking up, we expect you to speak up. It's actually your responsibility to speak up. But on the other hand, then you have the human on the other end of that message who's thinking, what you're actually asking me to do is to tattle on my friend here of 10 years, who, yes, I saw do something that they shouldn't have done. But to speak up is requiring me to uh, put myself at risk, uh, is requiring me to potentially betray a friendship, um, and and could have all kinds of other you know downstream consequences. Um, that's the kind of duality of this, and and why it is to use our favorite word, complex. Uh, all right, here's another positive one: excelling at your job. Okay, seeing that you're our boss. We kind of have to say yes to this one. <laughs> I mean, we can't say, well, I don't really need to excel. I could just do an okay job, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think in principle, on gut instinct, this will be the one that's, that I say, um, yes, I, I would sign on to this, but I also um, would give other issues consideration, right? So what does that all mean? Is does excelling at my job mean uh, sort of making myself shine as an individual at the cost of my teammates? Is it at the cost of uh, sacrificing, you know, important, valuable time in my personal life? Um, All those will come into consideration, but the idea that I should strive to excel at my job, I can sign on to. It's interesting, though, because to go back to where you started in, in this this conversation and talking about what, what employees often hear in the context of compliance talks and in the context of folks saying, do the right thing. Well, excelling at your job, maybe we agree that that is something that we can all get behind. But if excelling at my job means hitting my sales target, 
Uh, and on the other hand, that is in some ways a tension with the compliance expectations um, or the external demands that are coming to me. It's not so clear, you know? I mean, we often we often ask in the context of our culture reviews and in the context of our compliance program reviews, how would your organization respond to your CEO saying, or could you ever imagine your CEO saying, if it if the sale means that we violate our values or our code or our policies, that's business we don't want. So if you're the actual person who's got to make that choice between excelling at my job by fulfilling compliance expectations or excelling at my job by making the sale, that's a tough spot. Yeah, I love this game. I feel like what it is getting at and unearthing for me are all of those follow-up questions, the clarifying questions that need to be asked when you're in a situation where it potentially depends. And I feel like this really came out in what you were both were saying. Uh, some of the clarifying questions in this situation are excel by whose standards, by what means, and at what costs. I do feel that so often we just assume in our communication that we all are on the same page and that is very rarely the case. Well, I'm going to throw one more out there from the negative pile and I'm going to pick this one uh, because of how Huey responded to my question about excelling at your job by saying that, of course, she's going to say because 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 uh, because I'm the boss. Uh, and, and that one is refusing to do what your boss requests. It depends. <laughs> of course it does. <laughs> of course it does. I immediately had a flood of all of these media representations of being the moral rebel, the person who uh, stands up for what they think is right when they're told to do something they don't agree with. And so it's it's a pervasive narrative that exists, especially, I think, in the West and in individualistic context where we have the rebellion against authority as something that's very acceptable and deemed as good. And so I think what is interesting here and some of the clarifying questions that come up for me are just what is the level of trust and how how would that ultimately influence the decision making? You know, there's of course the broader context of why you disagree. But I think what it really gets at when you're in a position where there is a hierarchy, you know, the um, the Western narrative of rebelling against authority is just one narrative. There are so many contexts where what is absolutely right is to follow the lead of someone who's in a position of power above you and to not question it. What's so interesting about that one for me, especially having worked in other parts of the world, having worked in China, for example, which is a deeply hierarchical society, um, where there is a lot of reverence and, and loyalty paid to bosses or folks in more senior positions or elders. And in those scenarios where the organization is saying, do what's right, well, what's right a lot of the time is probably what my boss told me to do. <laughs> I'm not going to refuse to do what my boss tells me to do. And so again, it's just such a kind of, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. It's probably one that um, many of us have seen, and that seems um, obvious, but it's a layered and nuanced and complex. Um, and, and I think as we, what we're saying here is not that you need to buy into all of the different principles and worldviews and different culture perspectives. 
you don't have to agree with them, but you do have to recognize that they exist and that they're different and they're very real to the people that you're trying to influence. And that's your beginning step to understand how you can influence people's behavior, not simply by imposing your model on them, but recognizing that they operate in a different framework, different reality almost. But so it's not to say that if you're, you know, accustomed to the to the more individualistic culture that you have to now agree that it's a good thing to follow what your boss and your elders say. You don't have to. It's recognizing that that some of the people you work with do buy into that. And that's very real to them. That's very important to them. And they might disagree with your view as much as you disagree with theirs. It's that recognition that we're trying to highlight here. I love that. And to your point, Wei, uh, both just now and earlier, what we need to do is to be aware of our cultural context. We need to be aware of these things. And to, in order to get aware, we've got to collect data. We've got to assess our culture. We've got to understand the context in which the things we're saying are actually being received. This has been so much fun. Uh, Kaylin, we can play this game some more later. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to give you the last word before we go. Absolutely. Well, in one word, I'm going to go with complexity. I feel that what we are all circling around is just this question of how do we work together, get along? How do we make decisions when they potentially affect ourselves and others? And I just absolutely agree with the message that we need a whole lot more curiosity and to try to resist that temptation to grab for very simplistic frameworks, uh, ones such as right or wrong or good or bad, and instead be open and willing to engage with some of the nuances that will inevitably emerge. Terrific. Thank you, Caitlin, for joining us. And thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.